0: Hey podcast family, welcome back to another episode. This morning I was in our ultrasound obstetrical clinic and I received a text by one of our providers that said, hey Dr. Chop, I just wanted to make sure that SLE is not an indication by itself for late preterm or early term delivery, Right ah and that's a great question isn't it i mean sle is much more common in the female population and in those of reproductive age than it is in men so it's very timely and very appropriate to ask that especially regarding timing of delivery and the answer of course couldn't be a simple one like yes it is or no it's not because the true answer is ah that depends, and so I thought, you know that's another great episode. <laughs> I'm telling you if you guys stop asking if i if I ever stop getting questions from our medical students or residents uh uh, uh, uh peers uh whether they're in the community or not, uh, I'm gonna run out of ideas of what to do because I'm like, yeah, that's actually a, a That's a really good idea to cover because back in March of 2023, SMFM released their console series on this that covers systemic lupus erythematosus. So here's some of the things that we're going to get into, okay? Okay. Uh, what does a diagnosis look like? Because that has changed and it changed not that long ago. We're talking like 2019 and 2020. So we're going to cover that. We're going to talk about the diagnostic criteria and somebody who has SLE and then gets pregnant. What antibodies should you check for? Of course, you know the most common, right? Antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. But what about Roe and Law antibodies? We're going to talk about that, and we're going to cover that in this episode. We're going to talk about medications. Uh, Is it okay to use uh, uh, hydroxychloroquine in pregnancy? And what about methotrexate? Now, that's an easy one, right? Methotrexate is a no. But here's the other question. How long should you wait between methotrexate use and actually getting pregnant? we've covered that question on a previous episode covering that topic pregnancy but we're going to revise that and talk about this here as well and then of course we're going to get into the heart of this issue which is management do patients need low molecular weight heparin just because they have SLE or is there a certain caveat that goes with that and of course we're going to talk about timing of delivery and uh, here's a typical board question right here's how they do this on the oral boards um candidate x uh, I see you have a patient here with SLE. Let me ask you a question on that. You wouldn't let your patient with systemic lupus erythematosus in pregnancy go to thirty-nine weeks, would you? ah it's a great question so would you because the correct answer is well uh actually uh examiner uh, a b or c that is a very good question may I have some more background information on this patient like does she have any medical comorbidities does she have growth restriction does she have preeclampsia does she have a history of stillbirth and does she have any other indication for late preterm or early term delivery So that is the appropriate answer. We're going to get into all that in this episode, so let's cover SLE, update, for OB in this episode right now. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Right off the bat, if there's weird background sounds, yes, I'm on the move again. I'm going rogue. I'm actually in my clinic before patients get here. So sorry for the bad audio if it is bad audio, but that's why I have sound engineers. As a med student and as a resident, what am I talking about as a med student and resident? Even now, I mean, I still have this kind of fear of missing lupus, right? I mean, it's just such a big diagnosis. It's got so much implications for overall health uh, and longevity. Uh, I don't want to overcall it. I definitely don't want to miss it. And that's why it's helpful to have a set criteria. But syphilis is always called the great masquerader, right? It goes to such a long time of being diagnosed if it's not appropriately screened for. But I've always thought of syphilis as a great masquerader. I mean, it's so broad, even though there's a set criteria, which we're going to discuss, there's so many things that it could affect. That patients many times go to, you know, for, to one physician because of a weird rash. They go to another thing because of a weird fever. They bounce around until finally somebody goes, hey, all of these things sound like lupus. Now, there's some things that are much more suspicious, right? I mean, it's a typical USMLE or a step question, uh, the malar rash in, in a female patient. You're Like, "Ooh, I, I would think of, of lupus. Yeah, but what about weird kidney involvement or proteinuria or or urinary casts that don't go away or, or weird, you know, oral ulcers? Those are all things that potentially could be manifestations of lupus. That's why it's so broad. So, man, we're all pressed for time. I mean, I'm telling you, I'm in the clinic right now, hence the echo, because I'm in my uh, office, which I need more stuff on my walls because it's quite barren uh, and I get a weird echo. But anyway... What was I saying? Oh, yeah. So it's so broad that that you really need to keep an eye out. Because unless you get something like these malar rashes and the patient comes in with, hey, I've got this thing on my face, and it looks like a butterfly, and my joints really hurt, uh, and and I have fever, or it's like, ding, 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 hi, I have lupus. <laughs> it's easy to miss. It's it's such a chronic, uh, a drawn-out deal that it really does take our attention. Even though we're pressed for time with every patient, and there's so many things to ask, so many things we're screened for. Oh my goodness, we just got to just be be alert at what patients are telling us, right? Because we don't want to miss this. So by definition, SLE is defined by the American uh, Rheumatology Association as, quote, a chronic inflammatory disease with manifestations in nearly every organ system, although it mainly involves skin, joints, kidneys, blood cells, and the nervous system, end quote. And it, this is not just a reproductive age issue. Remember that in childhood, SLE is more likely to present with that um, more pathognomonic malar rash or fever uh, of unknown origin, lymphadenopathy. Yes, still rule out cancer, rule out the bad stuff, but SLE is another part of the bad stuff that we should always consider as a possible uh, uh, etiology of these complaints. In adults, weird things like more rheumatoid symptoms like Raynaud's pleuritis uh, or even uh, uh, altered joint function that people get uh, misdiagnosed as early osteoarthritis. Now, that is possible, but if they're 25, you got to look for other things. So the presentations are very varied between childhood and adulthood. But the most classic presentation is a triad, all right? So here's a first clinical pearl in our Clinical Pearls podcast. So the clinical triad presentation for SLE is fever, joint pain, and rash, okay? Fever, joint pain, and rash. I think I just said joint paint. Did I say that the first time? <laughs> fever, joint pain, and rash. My goodness, <laughs> Those are the three things that we said. Hey, if I come in and you got this weird malar rash, uh, joints hurt, and fever. I mean, she just wore a sign on her on her shirt says, "Hi, I have lupus." Okay, okay, it's true. Not every patient with those triads has to have lupus, but you get what I'm saying, right? I mean, that's a classic presentation of it. And so it's, it's, it's good to obviously screen for that. And we're going to get into the screening criteria, uh, here in the next, uh, section in just a moment. Um, but, but if those three things do come in, yes, it could be other things for sure. Things overlap, but just keep that on the differential. The American College of Rheumatology, the ACR, and the European League Against Rheumatism, that's the EULAR, both combined their, their academic forces and their brains in twenty nineteen and and revise the existing criteria that have been back in place since nineteen ninety-seven. And so the question is, why are they messing with something that's been around for so long? Well, it all has to do with the sensitivity and the specificity of your criteria. All right, y'all, listen to this improvement in the accuracy of the diagnosis based on this revision of the criteria. According to this new diagnostic scheme that really went into effect late 2019, early 2020, the sensitivity of this revised criteria went up to 97%. Now, of course, sensitivity is great for capture, but what about the specificity? Well, the specificity went up to 96%, and that's great because in the past, both of those numbers were in the lower 90s, and for specificity, it was in, in the mid to low 80s. So, on to say the 2019 revised SLE diagnostic criteria increased the sensitivity to 97% and the specificity of 96% using this new revised criteria criterion that we're about to get into right now okay first thing off the bat is if you suspect a patient has this issue start of course with the standard lab test that's never going away it's the old standard of the ANA but the ANA titer the amount that was considered positive has really varied oh it was uh one point it was one to 120 then one to 140 one to 160 Well, now, according to the revised American College of Rheumatology and the European League Against Rheumatism from 2019, that ANA has to have a cutoff of at least 1 to 80 on the standardized testing panel, which is the HEP2 cells, okay? That's a certain uh, lab bench test that it's, it's run against. So it has to be at least 1 to 80, and if that's positive, at least once so ideally you repeat that then you have to go on to look at the additional criteria and the additional criteria are weighted meaning some things are worth less points some things are worth more points so this is a point scale all right but if that ANA test is less than 1 to 80 on HEP2 cells then you can check again or you can consider an alternative diagnosis all right So it all starts with that ANA cutoff value of 1 to 80 on HEP2 cells, which is the standard gold uh, bench test uh, for this in the lab, all right? So that's positive. Then you go on to this combination of clinical domains as well as immunological or lab domains. So that hasn't changed, all right? So you need something on the clinical domain, and then something has to be matched on the immunological or the lab domain. Okay, don't send me any messages. I get that. That ANA by itself is not specific enough for SLE. That is true. I get that. But it is a door opener. So if it is less than 1 to 80, consider other things, or at least recheck her later. But once we have that, then we can go on to our clinical and our lab criteria. There are seven clinical domains, and we're going to get into that in a minute, and then three immunological domains. And we're going to cover that again in just a second. But each one of those criterions are assigned a point. They range from anywhere from two to 10. Remember, there's no zero or one, right? So that's a little clinical pearl there too. Each criterion in these 10 different domains, seven clinical, three lab-based or immunological, have a score of two or 10. Patients with at least one clinical criterion and 10 or more points are now diagnosed as SLE. Everybody good? So you need at least one clinical criterion and when you add up the points it has to be at least 10 or more to be considered positive for the diagnosis of SLE. Okay, hold on, I lost my place here. Okay, so I found it. I'm back, all right? So the seven domains, let me give you these quickly. And one, I hate the name of this domain because why don't you just say fever, right? So it's constitutional, and there's only one thing in there, and that's fever. So for example, that gets a point of two, right? So in addition to constitutional, which is the first domain, there's hematological, then there's neuropsychiatric, mucocutaneous, serosal, musculoskeletal, which is joint involvement, and then renal. Now let's stick with like serosal for a minute, okay? So even though there's a condition like constitutional that only has fever, only one thing, only one criteria for that domain, and that gets a point of two, for things that have more than one criteria for that domain, like serosal, that has three different things. It could be either plural or pericardial effusion or acute pericarditis. It's got those three different uh, criteria in that one domain. It always defaults to the higher score issue. In other words, if they have a pleural effusion, that's five points, but if they have acute pericarditis, that's six points. You don't add both the five and the six, you default to the higher number in that one category. Does that make sense? So even though cirrhosal as a domain has Plural or pericardial effusion, or acute pericarditis, if they have all of those, you only issue the six that's attached to the acute pericarditis because it defaults to the higher score number per domain. All right, you all, before we leave this quick review on the criterion, remember that if there's a criteria on the clinical scale that's happened at just one time, something that occurs on just one occasion, that's still enough to be counted uh, as an occurrence, okay? It doesn't have to be repetitive. So the criteria does not need to occur simultaneously, so this can happen down the time uh, timeline as the patient presents. An occurrence can happen just once uh, of the clinical markers to be considered uh, to check off that box, and within each domain, only the highest weighted criterion is counted towards the total score, all right? Now, that's all the clinical stuff. In terms of the lab or the hematological issues, then you have things that you already know about, right? Antiphospholipid antibodies, complement levels or SLE-specific antibodies like an anti-Smith antibody or an anti-double-stranded DNA, those three categories make up the immunological slash hematological part of the criterion, all right? So seven clinical markers, and then the three lab findings, which includes the three big categories of antiphospholipid antibodies, complement proteins, which is low C3 or C4, or both of those that are low, and then sle specific antibodies, specifically anti-double-stranded DNA or anti-Smith antibody. All right, so none of that had to do specifically with pregnancy. That's just the diagnosis of SLE. So 10 big boxes, 7 are clinical, 3 are hematological slash immunological slash lab-based. But here's how that relates to pregnancies. When a patient comes in and has a diagnosis of SLE, the first question to ask is, Oh my gosh, are you in remission? Because that's the huge thing, right? The best pregnancy outcome has to do when there's been no disease flare for at least three months, ideally six months, but life isn't perfect. So at least three months to be quiescent in disease, that would be best. And ideally, to not get pregnant until three months has passed since last exposure to methotrexate. Remember, that was one of the questions we were going to ask. If you give somebody methotrexate, even for an ectopic pregnancy, you're supposed to tell them, hey, do not try to conceive until this methotrexate is out of your body, and folate levels try to replenish themselves, so that's three months. Um, And then for SLE, is try not to get pregnant until you are well-controlled with your condition. And then ask if they've had certain antibodies checked. So it's a great a reminder to be in open communication with a rheumatologist or internal medicine physician who's caring for them, because you've got to know if they've got anti antibodies and if they have anti-RO or anti-LAW, because those are the ones that can contribute to neonatal lupus and to heart block, right? So, hey, you're pregnant with SLE, get that, I, I get that, okay, fine. If you don't have these antibodies checked, which you really should have, we need to check you for antiphospholipid antibodies and anti ro and anti-Law. And remember, just because somebody has antiphospholipid antibodies doesn't mean they have antiphospholipid syndrome because the syndrome itself is, remember, at least one of the clinical factors, clinical risk factors for APS, and then the supporting laboratory criteria. But if you don't know if you have an antibody uh, to APS, then you'll never know if they are more prone to have the syndrome. So testing for antiphospholipid antibodies is good. You're supposed to do that. But just because they test positive does not mean that they have the clinical manifestation of those antibodies, which is the criteria that they have to fulfill for antiphospholipid syndrome APS. All right, y'all, when we come back, let's talk about pregnancy's effect on the disease. In other words, does pregnancy help it get better or does pregnancy more likely to make it worse? Let's talk about that when we come back. So pregnancy is... Pretty rough, right? I mean, not only do you have the physical changes, the anatomical changes, you've got the altering physiological changes. And of course, you have the immunomodulation that goes with pregnancy. So pregnancy isn't so much that you're immunocompromised, it's that you're immunomodulated so that the host doesn't reject the graft, aka the baby, right? But pregnancy uh, itself is does have a theoretical risk of disease flares for patients with SLE. And that's mainly driven because of the estrogen uh, load, all right? So while the the anatomical changes is one thing and the physiological changes are the other, the truth is, is that it's the estrogen, the high estrogen levels that's likely to contribute to a flare of SLE. That's why it's super important for the patient to be ideally disease-free with no active flare for six months, y'all. That's the clinical pro. It's supposed to be six months. We'll take three months. Uh, Like, we have to compromise but tell patients that the, the, the benchmark, the gold standard time to wait is six months from disease flare to attempting pregnancy. Now, if only was that easy, right? Oh, it's been six months. I'm ready to get pregnant. And boom, they got pregnant right away. But you definitely don't want to do it within three months. I mean, that's the minimum. The best is to wait six months because the biggest predictor of having a flare during pregnancy is, is the last time that you had one. And it's greatly reduced if uh, if they haven't had a flare within six months. Their chance of having a flare is still there in pregnancy, but it's much uh, less than if it, they had a disease flare within the six months. Everybody good? The majority of flares during pregnancy, thankfully, are mild, and they typically in, uh, consist of more joint manifestations like arthritis, and maybe some cutaneous manifestations, and those can be treatable. But fifteen to thirty percent of the flares can be severe, and some, especially with severe nephritis or severe forms of serositis, can be life-threatening. But remember, thankfully, that's less than thirty percent, and these flares are not discriminatory in terms of trimester. These flares can occur at any trimester and they can also happen in a rebound kind of way in the postpartum interval. So just because they deliver doesn't mean that they're out of harm's way, especially for the first six weeks, all right? So everybody good? So the idea is wait six months if you can from last flare to pregnancy, Uh, make sure that you've got nephritis under control. And if you get a flare during pregnancy, thankfully it seems to be mild and typically consists of arthritis with cutaneous manifestations. Outside of those conditions of the SLE disease flare, remember that SLE just by itself also brings additional friends and you don't want these friends. These are true obstetrical complications that primarily are due to placental insufficiency. So yeah, things like growth restriction, that's more likely in SLE patients. And so are things like um, preeclampsia. Because of this higher risk of preeclampsia, remember that all patients with SLE are recommended to start low-dose aspirin starting at 12 weeks and continuing all the way until delivery. But it's not just preeclampsia, right? I mean, anytime the placenta is kind of jacked, then there's a risk of fetal growth restriction, and SLE also brings with it the increased risk of preterm birth. Now, speaking about aspirin, since we brought that up as a preventive tool for preeclampsia, There is another medication that intuitively you're like, oh, you don't want patients to take that, do you? But you actually do. I mean, this is recommended by SMFM and the American College of Rheumatology, the ACR, and that's hydroxychloroquine, all right? So HCQ, hydroxychloroquine, is recommended to use in pregnancy. So let me explain this, all right? The ACR does recommend starting HCQ in any pregnancy in women who have SLE and aren't already taking this medication. And this is based on data that shows decreased disease activity and decreased need for prednisone and decreased frequency of overall adverse pregnancy outcomes, including preterm delivery in people who first started hydroxychloroquine during pregnancy compared to those who did not. All right. Now the data isn't perfect, but the idea is: Hey, you're otherwise uh, doing well. Great, you're pregnant with uh, with uh, lupus. Here is your HCQ. You can use hydroxychloroquine in this condition. Now. SMFM states, quote, we recommend that all patients with SLE other than those with completely quiescent disease, and remember that's more than six months from conception when they had their last flare, either continue or initiate HCQ in pregnancy. And for those who have quiescent disease, shared decision-making is used to decide whether or not to start the medication during pregnancy, end quote. How about that? So, yes, hydroxychloroquine can totally be used in pregnancy. And ACR says that they can actually start it in pregnancy unless they've been completely quiet for at least six months. And this also includes patients who are taking low-dose prednisone or those using NSAIDs, PRN, to control some kind of SLE-related pain, all right? Remember, try to limit NSAID use in pregnancy overall, especially in those who have SLE because the last thing you want to do is take out their kidneys with some kind of nephritis issue. So yes, you can use hydroxychloroquine, and SMFM says that you can actually offer that to initiate it in pregnancy to try to keep adverse outcomes away. All right, y'all, let's stick with this theme of medications. If a patient is on hydroxychloroquine and still has a little flare, then you can absolutely use corticosteroids. But here's yet another clinical pearl. Try to use a corticosteroid that is not fluorinated. All right, that ain't, that's like prednisone, hydrocortisone, or prednisolone. Those are the ones to use. All right, these corticosteroids are not fluorinated. Again, that's prednisone, hydrocortisone, or prednisolone. The reason you want these that are not fluorinated are because they are largely inactivated by the placenta, all right? So there's a placental barrier, these uh, steroids, prednisone, hydrocortisone, or prednisolone get stuck in the placenta, they're metabolized, and they don't really pass through. And yes, there were some older studies that said, hey, steroid exposure, especially in the first trimester, you don't want to use those because of fetal orofacial clefts. But recent evidence has indicated that corticosteroids are actually not associated with these fetal malformations. So if hydroxychloroquine is not keeping a flare away, it is absolutely okay to use a low-dose corticosteroid, specifically prednisone, hydrocortisone, or prednisolone. All right, everyone, let's keep going down our list. All right, so they are on hydroxychloroquine. Boom, they have a flare. So you give them prednisone. And there's Still miserable, if they still have a lack of response to those two medications, there are other things that you can use. You can use azathioprine that's been accepted in pregnancy. It's not ideal, but it seems to be fetal safe. So azathioprine is SMFM, you know, okayed to use. You can also use cyclosporine if you really have to. And specifically, if you have an active case of lupus nephritis, then tacrolimus the uh, calcineurin inhibitor is also recommended, okay? So you have azathioprine, you've got cyclosporin, and specifically for lupus nephritis, tacrolimus, which is a calcineurin inhibitor, seems to get the job done to get it under control. Now, if I don't mention this, someone's going to ask, so I got to get it out there. I know there's a bunch of biological meds out there that may be used. But in pregnancy, we just don't have a lot of data, all right? So let me just read you exactly what SMFM says because they're like, hey, if you got to use it, I guess so. We just don't have a lot of info. Uh, And if the benefit seems to be there over any potential risk, then then use it. But otherwise, try not using these. SMFM states, quote, we suggest against initiating newer biological medications with pregnancy unless alternatives with better safety profiles are ineffective. For pregnant individuals with quiescent disease already taking these biological medications, then share decision-making to assess whether the risk of continuing these medications outweigh the risk of stopping them is recommended." End quote. In other words, If they're doing great, they haven't had a flare in six months, and they're on some new biologic med, and then they get pregnant talk with the patient and talk with the rheumatologist to figure out if it's better to keep them on it or to discontinue it, which risks, again, a new onset flare. So it's all part of shared decision-making. The good news is that they are not strictly contraindicated, like ex never use them, they're horrible. That's not the case at all. They seem to have good safety data. We just don't have a lot of info on them. So as of right now, it's use only with two underlines, only if nothing else seems to work. Now, before we leave this whole topic of meds, we've gotta cover anticoagulation, all right? Because anticoagulation, either prophylactic or therapeutic, is totally based on the patient's history, yeah? Remember that patients with SLE who meet the clinical and lab criteria for antiphospholipid syndrome, not just having antiphospholipid antibodies, but if they have the syndrome, those have to be treated with prophylactic anticoagulation and for six weeks postpartum. But just having antiphospholipid antibodies without fulfilling the, cri- the criteria for the syndrome is not enough, all right? And for those patients who have had a previous thrombotic event with antiphospholipid syndrome, then they require therapeutic anticoagulation throughout the entire pregnancy and also for those six weeks postpartum. Now, special little caveat for patients who meet antiphospholipid bit syndrome criteria because they've had a previous stillbirth or recurrent pregnancy loss, all right? So they've got lupus and their criteria that's fulfilled for APS is recurrent pregnancy loss or stillbirth. Then ACOG and SMFM state that they should have prophylactic heparin throughout pregnancy and also for the six weeks postpartum. Alright everyone, I've already said this before, but I've got to say it again because it's a big clinical pearl. Having antiphospholipid antibodies by themselves is different than having criteria fulfilled for the syndrome. So SMFM and ACOG both agree that if somebody has antiphospholipid antibodies without clinical events meeting criteria for APS, all that they need is low-dose aspirin, all right? And I'm asked this a lot by residents uh, or, or other peers is hey, I've got somebody with lupus with antiphospholipid antibodies, they need heparin, right? Uh, well, do they, have, do they fulfill the criteria for the syndrome? Because that's only for syndromic presentation. So ACOG and SMFM states, to be very clear, if they only have the antibodies without the clinical events meeting criteria for antiphospholipid syndrome, all that they need is the low-dose aspirin. And as our final recap on prophylactic or therapeutic anticoagulation, remember that that's on top of the already established low-dose aspirin that they should be on because just having SLE by itself puts these patients at high risk for preeclampsia. So, low dose aspirin is not sufficient for treatment of antiphospholipid syndrome that requires either prophylactic or therapeutic unfractionated or low molecular weight heparin in addition to that low aspirin that's already in use. Mm. All right. I never want these podcasts to go very long, and somehow they end up kind of long anyway. Uh, Before I get to the end, I do want to apologize again. If you do hear this weird echo, I'm doing this where I shouldn't. I'm not in the studio. I haven't been in the studio in a while. I've been doing this rogue uh, for the last couple of episodes with my little handy-dandy mic because I can't get to the to the podcast studio and the other day the other time I tried to get there somebody was using it so I'm like oh frustration anyway I do apologize if you hear weird background sound because well I'm in my clinic um now no I'm not putting patients aside I'm not ignoring them I, I won't even tell you what time I'm doing this because it's late and I'm about to go home but it's late I finished clinic already it was a great day in clinic uh and man, our, our just staff is just so great. So Hilda, if you're listening to the Hilda, thank you for, you just did so, we just, what a great team. I really enjoy working with you and Fried and everybody in our, in our group. But uh, I, anyway, what am the heck am I saying? Oh yes, the echo. So if you pick up a weird echo, I'm in the office. Everybody is bolted. I'm here by myself which I just saw a scary movie last night, so I'm really kind of wigging myself. I've got to get out of here. So let me finish this last episode, this last little section of this episode that has to do with surveillance and delivery timing so I can get the heck out. Before we cover surveillance and timing of delivery, a quick word about anti-Rho and anti-law antibodies, anti-SSA and anti-SSB. Those are the ones that can contribute to fetal heart block. But it is not recommended to give the mom steroids to try to prevent that, right? SMFM states that's, quote, of unproven benefit, end quote. So don't do that. It's also not recommended to do serial fetal echoes. You don't have to do that. You can just do one fetal echo, and even though some organizations do recommend serial fetal echoes to keep measuring the PR interval, that's actually not recommended by SMFM. And the reason that's not recommended is, quote, We acknowledge that this serial monitoring has been recommended by other organizations and that many patients undergo such screening. However, given the lack of proven efficacy as well as the risks associated with proposed interventions, routine serial fetal echoes for assessment of the PR interval cannot be recommended until more evidence of benefit is available." Now, if that makes some of you uncomfortable, like, ooh, I'm not supposed to be following the fetal echo serially, I'm uncomfortable with that. What if I miss a fetal heart block? Don't worry about it. You are assessing for that with every visit because you're doing Doppler assessment of the fetal heart rate. So as long as you're doing a Doppler and you're checking the baby's heartbeat, which you should be doing anyway at every normal prenatal visit, that's gonna be a great pickup for fetal heart block. So do your your second trimester fetal echo, that's fine, but SMFM, as of March, 2023, does not recommend doing continuous echo, just do Doppler assessment of the fetal heart rate like you could do anyway, and if you suspect fetal heart block, then go ahead and then recheck with a fetal echo at that time. Remember, of course, that because of placental insufficiency and the risk of FGR and stillbirth, antepartum fetal surveillance is recommended starting at 32 weeks onward, and serial growth ultrasounds is also recommended in all patients with SLE. So yes, having SLE is an independent indication to do antenatal testing starting at 32 weeks. But if you look at ACOG's bulletin on medically indicated late preterm or early term delivery, guess what's missing from that? SLE. It's not on there. So that's why I said at the beginning in the intro, like it's more complicated than yes, they require early delivery or no, they never do because it has to take into account the patient's history. Do they have preeclampsia? Is that well-controlled or not well-controlled? Do they have FGR? What are the Dopplers like? Do they have a history of stillbirth? Do they have a history of antiphospholipid syndrome? So be very clear, SLE is an independent reason to do surveillance, but SLE by itself, when it's otherwise uncomplicated, is not an indication for late preterm or early term delivery. They can get to 39 weeks. But if they have any other obstetrical complication from placental insufficiency, growth restriction, preeclampsia, obviously history of stillbirth, then earlier timed delivery is acceptable. You see, all of this started with that first question from, uh, from uh, one of the partners, uh, another peer in OBGYN uh, in our hospital, is, is SLE an indication for early delivery? And the answer is, it depends. If it's otherwise uncomplicated, no pregnancy complications, no past obstetrical uh, fiasco, they can wait until 39 weeks. But any medical or obstetrical comorbidity does qualify under individualized care for early delivery, early term or late preterm delivery based on the specific complication that they're having. And for that, you got to go back to ACOG's guidance on medically indicated late preterm or early term delivery for that specific condition. All right, podcast family, that is a wrap. I'm going to finish this up, send this off to our sound engineer who's going to hate it, because of all the background noise. But, you know, Mike, you know, you're the best. So thank you for what you do, Mike. And for all of you, I hope you found this helpful. Thank you so much for being part of our podcast community. Honestly, guys, the messages that we get, I say it all the time, super, super encouraging. uh, And uh, we do really do hope that you find value in this. So thank you for being part of our podcast community. And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.